Hello and welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Emma Webb. Emma is a broadcaster, a commentator, formerly the deputy research director at the Free Speech Union. She's done a lot of work with the New Culture Forum, and she's also the co-founder of Save Our Statues, which is a heritage campaigning organization. We discussed a lot of things during our conversation, including free speech, uh, the nature of the culture war and how it is so linguistically motivated and what we can do to get ourselves out of the quagmire of the counter-enlightenment. I hope you enjoy it. Emma, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, there are so many things I want to talk to you about, um, but let's start with a bit about you because I think a lot of people won't know about your background and how you got into commentary, broadcasting, all of those kind of things. How did, how did you start? I actually started, well, I started working in Westminster at the Henry Jackson Society pretty much straight out of university. Um, and I started by doing research in their Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism. So I was actually looking at particularly Islamist extremism, how they build institutions, how they create networks, um, and basically how they build their the, the power of their own platforms. And then I ended up going from that to working at Civitas, which is the, um, the Institute for the Study of Civil Society, which is also in Westminster, another think tank, where I was looking at issues of the sort of intersection between extremism and Islamism with other issues like integration and free speech. And that was at the time that the whole Islamophobia debate was kicking off. Um, and so that was kind of my my way into working in Westminster. And then from there on to working for the Free Speech Union. And I, I began to become more involved with sort of um, writing and commentating and, and, and doing various things in broadcast as well. But you must have been very young to be going into these kind of very heavy ideas was there something that stimulated you as a young person to think that's the, that's the topic i want to tackle i was so i i was fascinated by the ways that um ideas made people behave and when i was at university and i was studying theology i realized that the idea that ideas make people behave in any kind of way particularly religious ideas was absolutely not in vogue that people didn't really um, give that any any credit anymore everything was influenced by economics or you know other circumstances power structures and everything but the intellectual world didn't really have much clout and that was something that I was always interested in and, and then I discovered all of these Islamist preachers who were sort of frequenting British universities I'd go to different universities around the country and I'd watch them speak um, and then I just ended up getting sort of really drawn into sort of fascination with this particular Islamist network within mm -hmm. within the United Kingdom and also in Europe and um, going and, you know, watching them preach and collecting their literature. And, and that was how I ended up um, sort of sliding into working for the Henry Jackson Society. Because that's very interesting, isn't it? There was a period which is still going on to a degree where there is a kind of denialism about the influence of theocracy when it comes to uh, or the motivations of terrorist activity. And you would see things like someone, uh, you know, screams Allahu Akbar before exploding themselves. And people say, we never know what the motive is. Or someone screams, this is for Islam. And they say, but we can't work out why this person did this. Well, they told you, you know, so surely yeah. th th it's not just geopolitics. It's not just radicalization. There is 
there is certainly a religious motivation, isn't there? I've always thought that it is important to listen to what people are actually telling you about what they believe. And this is something that, you know, was said by Holocaust survivors about the Nazis, that when somebody tells you they want to kill you, you ought to believe them. So mm. when someone tells you they're doing something for a particular reason, it matters that they believe that. It doesn't matter whether they, whether you think that they have, you know, theologically or philosophically sophisticated views. Yes. That bears absolutely no relationship to how deeply they hold those views. And um, one example that I always like to go to is of um, two brothers who were involved in Islamic State. And one of the reasons that they stated that was published in one of the Islamic State propaganda magazines for why they um, went and joined ISIS was because they had dreams in prison about Muhammad visiting them on a white horse and essentially telling them that they needed to go um, into battle for Islam. And I think mm. that it's it's interesting it's intellectually interesting but it's also important for understanding what these movements are and i think very little credit is given to the influence of the intellectual um landscape and different zeitgeists when understanding how our history unfolds and particularly understanding the present because especially right now ideas matter so much in our politics and it's it's important that we you know give them the credit that they deserve so when you talk about it, islamic extremism specifically there is a counter argument. We, we understand why connecting it to the religion, uh, well, people would be reticent to do so because it invites, I suppose, an Islamophobic backlash. You know, you, there are people who will throw bacon at mosques or who will tear a hijab off a woman on the street. There are these unpleasant people that behave in these unpleasant ways. And I suppose the argument is that if you connect uh, terrorism to a faith, uh, then you embolden that kind of behavior. Do you, do you take that on board? I think it's one of the... Uh, in when we talk, often talk about cancel culture and things, I think this is one of the original sensitivities because Islamism is Islamism, all right? You, you can't remove the religious aspect from it. It is a socio-political movement. It is a very distinct phenomenon that is separate from Islam but is informed by Islam. Yeah. Um, and that is obviously going to cause some difficulties and sensitivities. And, and there are some people who have said that we shouldn't be calling it Islamism, but the problem is what else do you call it? Mm. Because that is the most accurate description of what it is. And it has its own intellectual history. It has its own intellectual giant within it people like Saeed Qutb um, and it is a very distinct thing and it's not it's not something that should be conflated and I think that understanding it and as, as many have done as being one of the totalitarian political movements of the of, of the 20th and of the 21st century is a very important way of understanding it and obviously that's going to create some kind of confusion but that's another reason why it's important to make it clear that this is a is a distinct political movement and yes. it has a complicated relationship to islam as a religion but there's no getting around that unfortunately yeah um i mean i'm very interested as well in which uh these sort of extremist moments in our history seem to be tied to this idea of offense culture and i remember even uh, you you will know about it but you'll be too young to remember it when the Salman Rushdie uh, affair occurred. And I remember seeing interviews on TV where people were saying, well, he shouldn't have caused offence. It's his fault. Um, even my Christian theology teacher at school said, well, if you're going to insult someone's religion, you get what you, you deserve. Uh, this was actually a really, people forget that this was a very common, held, commonly held view that this esteemed, brilliant novelist was to blame and we shouldn't be forking out to protect him from uh, theocrats who wanted his head. I mean, this is, 
but but it is a, a it was the seeds of what we now see as cancel culture, I suppose. Yeah, and the and that kind of victim blaming approach to 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 yeah <laughs> use modern parlance, exactly, yeah, yeah, to steal a term is still going on. If you re- remember what happened um, after the murder of Samuel Patti and um, leaders around the world like Imran Khan in Pakistan or Erdogan in Turkey mm. were calling for a boycott of France and accusing. The, the French and Macron of being Islamophobic for allowing these cartoons to be shown, for allowing them to be published. Charlie Hebdo were also accused of being Islamophobic and it became a justification for why they were attacked. Mm. Um, and in that way, so, very often the term Islamophobia gets used simply as a byword for blasphemy. It gets used as a way of silencing people, either silencing people who are criticizing, as I say, Islamism as a political movement and the activities of that political movement, not people who are explicitly criticizing Islam. Islam. Not that there would be anything wrong with criticizing Islam, but those those criticisms um, are very often branded as Islamophobic, and that becomes a justification for, in the case of um, following Samuel Patti's death, boycotts. But sometimes could be used as a justification for attacks, and there's a lot of you know complex things going on there. Um, but it's it's quite clear that what happened to Sal- to um, Salman Rushdie is still something we saw it with the Danish cartoon affair. Mm. We saw it with Charlie Hebdo, and as you say, often the people who end up getting attacked for these things sometimes you know it's it, it's fatal. Yes, um, they very often get um, you know blamed just because they have said something that other people find offensive, rather than educating people that that is not an appropriate way to respond if you feel offended. Right. I mean, well, we never seem to learn, though. This is the problem. Every time one of these things happens, there is a debate about the extent to which the victim deserved it or the extent to which they provoked. Uh, and actually, surely the, the point is that even if they had deliberately set out to provoke, even if they wanted to insult Islam, in a free society, that's their right. As it happens, that wasn't the case with Charlie Hebdo. I mean, that's a massive misunderstanding. Um, but why do, we, why do we never learn from this? And wh- why, do, why can we not resolve this among ourselves? I wish I knew the answer to that question. I think it's a really difficult one. And I think we're seeing a similar thing now with all sorts of other categories of modern blasphemy, whether it's to do with um, gender critical feminists or and, and the trans debate, whether it's to do with Black Lives Matter and race and decolonization. I think that the West has been suffering a kind of identity crisis for a very long time now. And postmodernism, relativism, cultural and moral relativism has set everyone's head spinning Mm. and we no longer know exactly how to respond to these things and the the way that language is used has become so slippery and so changeable um, and and so so magic in Mm. many ways that it has it's becoming increasingly difficult to even have the sorts of conversations that you would need to have in order to resolve the underlying philosophical difficulties that we're facing. So let's talk about that a little more because I feel that a lot of the culture war is really about language and about having to because in order to get to the arguments the hub of the arguments you first have to negotiate the mind the linguistic minefield that has been set uh, by activists so you think that a term means one thing you think that to be anti-racist means to be opposed to racism which we all are and then you find that no it doesn't mean that it means a a new form of discourse that says you are either uh, racist or anti-racist and that to be not racist is a form of racism Right. So simply not to be racist. This is directly from Ibram X. Kendi. He's explicitly said that. Um, So that in other words, we find ourselves in a position where in order to oppose racism, you have to also oppose anti-racism. And people can't make sense of this because because the language has been. 
because activists keep redefining words and denying that they are redefining words. It, it, it's it's almost a trap. Yes, <laughs> there's yes, no exactly. way there's no way that you can wiggle out of it because things have lost their original meaning. And you see the same thing with um the whole debate around who a woman what a woman mm. is and the fact that we have a, a Labour Party that just simply cannot state what a woman is. We've Rishi people- Sunak struggled the other day. Everybody struggles yeah. and, and it's, 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 it's become the ultimate gotcha question that yeah. politicians are now absolutely terrified, jump behind the couch, afraid um, whenever anybody mentions the word woman because they know that they're going to be asked a question that they know the answer to, but they know they can't say that that is, that is the answer. Yeah. And it's, it's like the old Orwellian two plus two equals five. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? You have to say something that you believe is untrue because of the, 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 the mess of language tripwires yes. that have been laid around you. And I think that we, we, I mean, the perfect example of this is, um, the whole, uh, the, the, the whole story around the Conservative MP who's come out as trans but is not going to do anything to change his biology. This he's, is Jamie he's, Wallace. He's still go yeah, he's still going to be using his male pronouns, the you know, his bi- of his biological gender. Yes. Um, and then he has come out criticizing the government for um for, for not including trans in their conversion therapy ban. But that itself was uh a spin because mm. conversion therapy when re- referring to homosexuals refers to trying to change somebody's sexual orientation from one thing to another mm. but when it's being used in reference to uh, in reference to trans people it's essentially referring to a ban on anything other than simply affirming somebody's self-identification yeah. and this criticism is coming from a man who is self-identifying as a woman but is actually not doing anything to change his his gender in any ways that you know, would typically be uh, recognised as going along the journey to becoming a trans person yes. so the whole thing is just an absolute mess and well, I think the reason the, the, the one of the reasons why we've got ourselves into this situation in the first place is because we just simply haven't been able to have the conversations because we've, no. we've wrapped ourselves in so many layers of censorship and so many tripwires that the important conversations that needed to happen, our ab- ability to even simply state the truth is now completely lost on us. It might be worth outlining precisely what's happened with this conversion therapy debate because the government... Uh, were going to pass a bill saying they were going to ban the conversion therapy. But within that was conflated the, the kind of conversion therapy you describe where, that, where you are trying to change a homosexual person's sexual orientation by whatever it means, by whatever therapeutic means, brainwashing, whatever that might be. And that is conflated with uh, paediatricians, say, who have a child come to them who has gender dysphoria or is confused about their gender, asking why this might be, trying to interrogate it a bit, trying to trying to work out whether this has come about through internalized homophobia, through uh, abuse, through whatever it might be, rather than just affirming, mm-hmm. yes, you are whatever you say you are. And that's actually, those two things are incredibly different. And they've both been called conversion therapy. And it, but it, again, it is this way of using language in a, in a slippery way to package things up that don't belong together. And it, it is, it's, 
actually, I think, a very risky thing to mm. describe that as conversion therapy because gender dysphoria is a very complicated thing that isn't properly understood. And it's also something that is extremely disputed. And setting people down a medical pathway and excluding from them any of the clinical alternatives, so um, you know, possibly seeking some kind of therapy to deal with your gender dysphoria if that's what you prefer, rather than going down the medical and the chemical route, yeah. um, that should not be described as conversion therapy and it it does it, it is a, it's an injustice to 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 the, the original meaning of conversion therapy and we see this also with you know some trans people who who feel very uncomfortable being lumped in with all of these new bizarre genders and orientations that have come on the scene and yeah. and you you see this with I've I've seen this myself with people who will identify themselves as being um, I think I think the terms are, you'll be more familiar than I am. Gray ace, gray oh, sexual, and demi, which is, is, is I, it strikes me as that is just a, is a normal um, a normal a, a, the most common form of sexuality. Yeah, de demisexual would be an. Uh, isn't demisexual someone who uh, involves themselves in heterosexual relationships so long as there is a romantic element? To which is the majority of people. In other words, old-fashioned <laughs> heterosexual. Exactly. Yeah, that's which is now under the queer bracket. And right. and all so, of these identities then get lumped in together with mm. some of the the stranger ones, and sometimes in with kinks and all sorts of yeah. things. And then you will have um, you know trans trans people, public public trans people, people like Blair White, for example, um, who really <laughs> I imagine would probably feel quite offended to have their identity as lumped in with all of these other yeah. things, as if somehow these things are all in in some kind of alliance with each other. And it ignores all of the tensions between these things as well and tries to gloss over them, which is how we've ended up in this whole problem with the sex and gender debate, because the assumption was that that with intersectionality that there must be um, an alliance there when actually there's a tension between gender and sex when it comes to rights. And this is very interesting in terms of the LGBT community, because within that you have this conflation of completely different um, causes. And that might be causing the problems. Isn't it? Every, you know, often people will say, "Well, those who are um, who are have concerns about, say, the Tavistock Clinic or, or, or gender clinics for children, are the same as homophobes from the '70s who said uh, it's just a phase." You just, and these are completely different things. But the conflation is a trick, is a kind of, and and it's interesting. The phrase conversion therapy in itself carries a, a very weighty implication, which is that you are being transformed from something that you are innately. You are being converted, so in homosexuality, you're being converted from your homosexual nature into your he a heterosexual nature. But when it comes to gender identity, well, for a start, gender ideologues often claim it's not fixed, that it's something that is malleable. And here they are saying, at the same time, if a child says they are something, then they always have been, and that is fixed. So, th so there's no coherence within the logical framework that they propose. The whole thing is completely confused. And actually, there, I think there was an interesting article, I believe it was by Lucy Bannerman in The Times about this, where she pointed out that because these conversations have been happening in, in you know, in secret, basically, mm. with, with lobby groups like Stonewall gradually rewriting the rules around these things and the ways that we use language, that because these conversations have taken place in secret and with censorship, so you know anybody who doesn't agree with them is not allowed to take part in the conversation, mm. it means that these inconsistencies in their own arguments 
haven't, they just haven't been worked out. And it goes to show the importance of freedom of speech and free debate because it's actually good for your argument too, that you would have been able to iron out these inconsistencies in your own perspective if you had been um, in contact with those who didn't entirely agree with you or those who completely disagree with yes. you. Um, and so I think that, that these things just simply are confused. I think that there isn't a, there isn't a way of making these views flush <laughs> they it, are they are just confused but it might help if we could say you know we have lobby groups that, that protect gay rights mm -hmm. we have lobby groups that that protect trans rights and that, that we don't conflate the two but then when the lgb alliance attempted to do that people started lying about them and saying they were therefore anti-trans. No, they're just dealing with a specific issue that isn't related to the other issue. This strikes me as very simple. And these things need to be balanced as well. Rights, people's rights need to be balanced. Yeah. It's almost a utopian way of thinking to presume that all of these things must fit with each other perfectly. That's not how society works. It's not how rights work. That you know, women, are, women should be entitled to have their own same-sex protected spaces. That does not mean that you are being being transphobic or anti-trans, it doesn't mean that you don't believe that trans people also deserve equal rights and to be treated with dignity as human beings. But it doesn't mean that those rights get to impose on somebody else's rights to be protected and to be safe. Yeah. And that those conversations should be censored in such a way that that in the in the trans debate, particularly in the case of women, that their voices throughout have been completely ignored and have been smeared and have been tarred as being transphobic and therefore not having a valid point to make. Um, I think that we need to move past this idea of really of intersectionality and of the, of the, the idea that all of these um, minority groups have um, uh, sort of shared shared interests in that respect that actually there may be tensions there those rights have to be balanced and we you know it doesn't mean that we don't we don't believe that some people should be deprived of their rights if that makes sense no, it does make it does make sense um but any kind of attempt to have a debate is interpreted as a form of hatred mm -hmm. as a form of bigotry i've and i've actually i you know i know there are people out there who hate or have prejudice towards trans people but i've never met them they're not very commonplace, but if you listen to Owen Jones and people like that, you would you would believe that this country is, is awash with them. Why do they make such an infantile interpretation of, of perfectly legitimate uh, questions? I think most people have a very live and let live approach to all of these things. Yeah. And that even if you disagree, well, you could disagree with somebody's you know sexual behavior. It doesn't mean that you don't believe that they should have equal rights. And um, we've seen th this as well around the whole debate relating, particularly in Finland, um, the use of the, um, the Finnish... Um, politician who had tweeted a I, I believe she tweeted a bible verse yes. and and that had been an ongoing case that has finally been resolved and she's been vindicated um but even the you know the language of sin has become problematic that that mm -hmm. christians are concerned that they can't even talk about their own traditional or orthodox doctrines because even those things have become verboten and i think most people do have a, a live and let live approach yes. and um you know ultimately i just think that when people like Owen Jones and others want to straw man the people who who disagree with them, I, I, if I were being cynical, I would say that that was just simply about power. That's just simply about excluding those people from the debate because it's in the interest of their argument to do so. Mm. Although I think ultimately it isn't in the interest of their argument to do so. I think everybody benefits from free debate, but then 
as you say, debate itself has been cast as something that is white supremacist. Yes. And people like Robin DiAngelo, democracy, meritocracy, all of these things that have built an enlightened, open, free, liberal society, all of these things are now white supremacist and must be done away with. And I think there are so many aspects of this that can be can be picked out that are ex- extremely complicated and difficult but i think ultimately to be cynical those who say that everything is about power i think often with them everything is about power well sure i mean that's a difficult one is it i always like to assume that people believe what they say you know i used to i always like to take people at their word and the reason for that is i feel that the argument will 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 collapse or will be sustained on its own merit irrespective of whether they believe it truly or not um, but it is difficult to escape the feeling that those, like, exactly as you say, that they, it feels like a power grab. Um, but is it not possible that, that that people have been so sort of captured by this worldview that they do genuinely see hatred everywhere and they do see these power structures everywhere? I mean, I, I've read Robin D'Angelo's books. I, I've read a lot of what Owen Jones writes. I think they mean it. And that's even scarier in a way because it means it means they've they've surrendered the capacity for critical thought. Yeah, and it, it's a religious worldview. So, in a way, you can't you can't reason them out of it mm. because it's closed. It's a closed it's a closed framework, and everything makes sense within that worldview um, if you're a part of it. And it's very very difficult to challenge because things like systemic racism can't be empirically. Well, it, I mean, the the government's um, race report did essentially debunk it, but yes. people still continue to to argue in favour of it and would say probably that the report itself was was well, they said the report racist. was was evidence of systemic racism because it showed that re- systemic racism uh, precisely. In, in, you know. And this is exactly the perfect example of why you can't you can't reason them out of it, and mm. so there 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 isn't a way of um and of of um of rash of rationally discussing. The views or the implications of their views, or help, or trying to debunk. But that raises a huge problem, doesn't it? Because if we are to get anywhere, and if we if we are to, you know, because I don't believe in writing anyone off, but if there are some people whose entire worldview depends upon the negation of reason, mm-hmm. then there is no way actually to engage. Is there? I mean, should we just reserve our energy for those who are still capable of discussion and just let the others get on with it? It's a difficult one. And I think to a degree, simply getting on with the act of debating and discussing and refusing to be pushed around and bullied is the best way to deal with it. So um, a lot of those who don't want to be reasoned with, who don't want to debate, don't want to have discussions at all with the other side because they believe that the other side are essentially evil. they will try to impose themselves on people to try to get them cancelled, to try to silence them. The Free Speech Union is a perfect example of an organisation that is helping to redress that imbalance. Um, GB News is another example of something helping to redress that balance because it allows those discussions to take place in a pub- in a public platform. Mm. Um, and those women, you know, for example, like Maya Forstater um, and Caroline Fisk and others who have stood up and said, actually, you know, we're going to campaign that if you want our vote, then you have to you know, if you want our ex, you have to respect our sex, as they were yes. saying. Um, and I think that all of these different movements that are arising, Harry Miller is another one, people who are trying to address these things in the courtroom um, and and through the law, all sorts of organisations are being um, 
built up and starting to flourish and all of these different platforms. And I think simply keeping that enlightenment spirit of debate alive does a lot of good. And to a degree, you can almost let them get on with it. Well, because they are um, the minority, right? Because, because I mean, I the, was it the um, more in common study found that roughly thirteen percent of people in the country would fit into that category of social justice activist intersectional mm-hmm. mindset. That's a minority in every age group, right? So that means it's not a question of uh, old people failing to keep up with young people. I mean, you're a good example of this. Young people as well uh, don't support these movements mm-hmm. on the whole. Um, so is it just a case of of uh, of, of working around that very vocal, very powerful minority and having these debates so that everyone else can feel they can yeah, participate. Yeah, I think it's osmosis. You need to make it clear that it is the majority of people who believe in, you know, for example, the traditional ideas of, of um, sex rather than gender, that um, common sense prevails amongst the majority of the population. It's just that they, the majority of the population has had a less organised voice than the minority of activists who are very good at building institutions and lobbying or have been so far. And in, in a sense, um, the common sense side of the debate is is really lagging 20, possibly even 50 years behind those activists. But, but at least starting to build those platforms goes somewhere and i think anybody who knows somebody who's woke particularly in my generation it's impossible not to know people who would be defined as woke yes. you know that though that that it is the golden question how do you engage with them because you can't change someone's mind through reason if you can't talk to them if they storm out of the room if they if they you know scream at you and call you names and 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 storm off there's there's no way to reason with that and so i think whilst that is the golden question i think you know that that many people around the country just simply by being exposed to the existence and the presence of other voices mm. may see something that piques their interest may they yeah. may they may start to to reason through some of the inconsistencies in their own perspective and become more open to other people's views just through at least the possibility of exposure to something other than their own echo chamber and that in itself i think can be very beneficial but you know going back to what we were talking about earlier in relation to islamism i uh, am convinced that when people talk about de-radicalization it sounds like a very passive process that you know the radicalization fairy hits them on the head with the wand and they become radical and then suddenly they get de-radicalized in the same way and they're and they're back to normal um i'm convinced that you 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 can't take ideas out of people's heads and it would be undesirable to do so those people are entitled to their views i think that they're wrong um i think that they're unreasonable um, but they're entitled to hold those views. And in the meantime, the rest of us can get on with building reasonable platforms to have reasonable discussions like GB News. It's interesting what you're suggesting, that actually those who have a more commonsensical approach to life just haven't been mobilising effectively because I suppose it was taken for granted, right? Would that be why? I mean, to take the best... I mean, I think the Free Speech Union is an excellent example. And the reaction to the formation of the Free Speech Union was very interesting. So I think what Toby Young has done there is a really excellent thing. And yet he came under a lot of flack when he did it. And people were mocking the idea that it was necessary. Well, I mean, no one's mocking it now. It's been completely... Well, some people are, but, you know, they haven't been paying attention. It's been completely vindicated, the necessity for this Mm. organisation. So many people's lives have been pulled out of the gutter. Uh, People who have been targeted unfairly uh, by by cancel culture 
the evidence is now in, I suppose. And that was, and you, you, you have obviously been a, a part of the Free Speech Union. It must feel very gratifying to see that you're actually doing something to, it to is, help. It's one of the most incredible things that I've ever been a part of and seeing the work that my colleagues do, particularly on the case team. It, it's, it's incredible to see and most people don't have this perspective because they'll get snippets of it here and there. But mm. the sheer number of normal everyday people, train drivers, teachers, you know, the, not high profile people like J.K. Rowling, who are falling afoul of cancel culture and need help. They need help to work through the legal process or the employment process and all of these things. Um, and I think it's really important that, as you were saying about mo people mobilizing in response to these things, it's, it's the same as with, with, you know, if we're going to talk about geopolitics and everything that's happening um, with China and Russia, that for a long time we sat on our laurels and assumed that it was the end of history. So we could all just assume that democracy was the end point and that through trade with China and Russia that they would become liberal democracies too and that that was that and everything was settled, which yeah. is so hubristic. <laughs> I think we've done the same thing when it comes to our own culture as well, that we, you know, we have totally um, sort of... Uh, not not abandoned the defense of democracy, but assumed that it would take care of itself. And the majority of people are not like us. They're not people who are constantly looking at all of these stories and, and hunting them out and talking constantly about everything that's going on. The majority of, of normal, everyday people are getting on with their lives. They have families, they have jobs. They don't necessarily want to be political because unlike what the activists say, they, as totalitarians do, um, they like to believe that everything is politicized. Everything in life doesn't have to be politicized. And the majority of people are not political unless they absolutely have to be. But unfortunately now, people really do have to be political. And I think a lot of these issues, whether it's around gender, just the same as it was with Brexit, have made people sit up and notice that something is going on um, and that they need to be a part of, of fixing that and, and shifting the balance of power back in the direction of the majority of people's thinking. Um, and so I think that this, in a way, is is a beautifully conservative, almost Burkean thing, that little platoons are coming together and, and setting about trying to mend the fabric of civil society and to rebuild institutions that give them a voice out of necessity because just needs must. Well, they have to, don't they? Because the culture war is something that most people can no longer afford to ignore because it's been forced, they've been forced to confront the reality of it. I mean, for a long time, uh, one of the major criticisms that I would get when I was talking about these things is just ignore them. Just they'll go away. If you just ignore them, it doesn't matter. This doesn't affect my life. No one's ever asked me to declare my pronouns at work, et cetera, et cetera. I've never done an unconscious bias training session. Well, you know, it's only a matter of time. And I think what you said about the free speech union, part of the reason why it was so easy to dismiss it was because the evidence of the of how widespread this problem was simply wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Now it is. And of course, a lot of the cases that you deal with at the Free Speech Union won't be publicised, won't be, won't make the, 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 the newspapers. And so people can still, at the moment, live in a world where they think that isn't really happening. Mm -hmm. And then you get these denials of cancel culture. But, but those denials are getting quieter, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to, to deny that there's a problem. It's the same with um, what we've been seeing in recent weeks in women's sports. Mm. It's become almost impossible and 
in a way, almost unfashionable to deny that there is a problem there because it's obvious that that this poses a risk to women's sport and is unfair on women. And it's ma- it's given um, an increased public awareness to an issue that before perhaps was a little bit niche that some people could could ignore and say wasn't as serious as people were saying it is. And yeah. you know, it was with you were saying with the free speech union, you know, what is publicly known as the tip of the iceberg. And there'll be many people around the country who are self-censoring, who feel silenced. Uh, there was a policy exchange report some years ago looking at, um, at censorship within academia. And it was clear that, you know, academics are also living in this stifling um, climate when it comes to their expression. The same with John Holbrook recently and the case um, to do with free speech for barristers. In every walk of life, people are facing... as well. Exactly. Same thing. But particularly, I think, particularly in in the artistic world, um, people are really um, finding it creatively as well as intellectually stifling mm. and having to hold their views in quite in secret which is which is a soul destroying and totalitarian experience and I remember um, not that long ago I was reading this brilliant book called Reading Lolita in Tehran and she's talking about the experience um, uh, under the Iranian regime and sh- this this lady had set up a book club for um, students to come together and read verboten literature like mm. Nabokov and and others and she was she talks about how um, a person would have to have their private self and their public self and her description of um, of, of living under totalitarianism, Nabokov's invitation to a beheading, so many books that explore these sorts of themes perfectly describe people's experience in all sorts of um, all sorts of different industries, from from train drivers to famous authors like J.K. Rowling. Um, and I think that that is something that is very concerning and is going to become Im- almost impossible for people to deny in the coming. Um, coming years as well you know it's the same with the um with the, the debate around statues and heritage i was involved in setting up save our statues which was an organization uh, intended to help protect heritage and that was because people on the ground were concerned about their statues in their local town if people can remember Baden powell's statue when they wanted to take that down locals came out and practically fought people off yeah. from taking their statue away because this is what happens when 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 the phenomenon comes for the things that you love and for the and things was that, that in you... Blackpool, I think, was the Baden-Powell statue? Paul? I think oh, it's was in Paul. Paul. I knew Somewhere was a in, in the south, it. I think. Okay. Um, but this is what happens when, when, when the, the, this phenomenon comes for the things that you love. We can call it cancel culture, but I think it's something far greater and more sophisticated and actually more worrying than the, that term can encapsulate. Well, and, I th- in, and it is coming for, in a sense, in a Scrutonian sense, your home, the yeah. things that you that you hold with great affection. And I think when that happens, that's that's when people will set up and realise that they need to take part in the pushback. And it seems endless. I mean, you know, at GB News, we are reporting on statues uh, being removed weekly, really, because the, the campaign groups that are wanting to do this, Firstly, they've got a list of the statues they want to target, and there are many, many more to come. Uh, and they have institutional power. They appear to uh, have the complete support of people such as Sadiq Khan. Um, they, they, whenever we see um, public consultations regarding statues, in almost every case, the public overwhelmingly reject the idea that the statue should be modified or removed or anything. And then very often they take it down anyway. And they do it anyway, and it's just ignored. So there we have, if we want to talk about institutional power... 
Isn't that where、mm-hmm. it lies? Yeah, and I think as well that this, it, it, it's so much of this, as you were saying, is about language. And it's, it's about what people say rather than what they do.、Mm. And when it comes to historical figures as well, Livingstone is a perfect example of this.、Another、so, this is in ci- Glasgow, right? Glasgow City Council released another, should we call it a hit list、yeah. <laughs> of, of, of naughty statues.、Yeah. And Livingstone, who spent his life campaigning for the abolition of slavery, was put on this list just simply because as a child he worked in a cotton mill. Yes, and <laughs> child and, labor as well. Right.、Um, he's sort of the victim there, I would suggest. You would, you would think, <laughs> but no, he, he's, he's implicated in slavery. There's the same with Rostat,、um, um, Tobias Rostat, whose、yes. memorial was disputed in Cambridge, and recently that case was also won、um, in favor of keeping the memorial in place. The, these tenuous links that people,、uh, these activists will find between these individuals. Can you, can and, you talk me through that, though? Because there was also the bust of. Thomas Henry Huxley at Imperial、mm-hmm. College, another anti- anti- explicitly anti slavery abolitionist figure. How is it that these, or why is it that these activists, rather than just focusing on Edward Colston or the slave traders, are now trying to problematize those who abolish slavery? This is the word magic again. And, and I, I, to, be, to be very cynical about it, I would say that it's, bec- it's the same as with,、um, with trying to cancel people's speech. That if you go for the people, Who are saying the most innocuous things,、mm. then that will really terrify everyone. And so, if you can get the statues taken down of those who campaigned for the abolition of slavery on the basis that those people are also white supremacists, and why are they white supremacists? Well, because they, they participated in structural oppression. They lived at a time and were operating at a time when they were participating in white supremacy and therefore a tarred. By association, simply almost by being born as a, as, a, as a powerful white man in a particular period of history. And so, by、um, association, absolutely everything. The same with when, when they tried to remove the statues, I believe it was at the, was it the British Library, they wanted to remove the statues of Beethoven and Mendelssohn. Going for Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and abolitionists. Over, say, statues of people who were you know, overtly terrible, like Hitler,、um, <laughs> that, that sends a message of power, I think. Right.、Um, and it's, it, it is a, it's a terrifying one. And that's why when I think people who get cancelled, particularly feminists, get cancelled for saying something that everybody pretty much around the country believes,、yeah. it sends shivers down everyone's spines and makes them shut up. Um, and so, whether it's being done consciously or not, I think that also perhaps has something to do with power. So, how do we address that? Because if it is the case that the public are going to be ignored, this is an anti democratic process. Statues are going to come down, streets are going to be renamed, whether we like it or not, all of which was,、uh, was predicted in 1984, by the way. It's as though they're following it as a guidebook.、Yeah. Uh, and it's become a cliche, but it's an unavoidable one now.、Mm-hmm. So, so it, this is very much a top down. Thing, it seems to me. How, how can you possibly do anything about that if they're willing to dispense with the idea of, dem- of democratic process? I wish that there was a solution in Orwell to the problem. Because、yeah. I remember as well at the、it、time. It ends before when... the solution comes. <laughs> exactly.、Yeah. The solution is just that your face gets eaten by rats. Yeah, yeah.、Um, I, I, I remember when、um, Sadiq Khan actually launched his statue commission that I wrote a piece for The Spectator referring to that particular quote from. 
1984. Yeah, every about street will be renamed. renamed every yeah. book will be rewritten. And didn't even realize at the time how true that was going yeah. to be. I was referring specifically to the statue review, but since we've seen people like uh, Clanchy having to rewrite her, um, Kate Clanchy having to rewrite her own memoirs, to rewrite her memories, essentially. Yes. And all of these, um, you know, books that and, and authors that have been cancelled or had their books pulled and all of these things. I, I don't know what the solution is, but I do think that, firstly, small civil society action is important. So right. in local areas, there have been a number of successes, whether, whether it is to do with free speech or it is to do with heritage, actually setting up campaigning organizations and pushing back and making sure that there are alternative voices, simply being able to say, well, you took this statue down, even though all of these people objected. Well, you have to get those people to know that it's happening in the first place to be able to object so that you can at least hold them to account when they remove the statue without a democratic mandate. Yes. Um, and having those things on record, not allowing them to erase our memories of these places. So, you know, to... To, to make a very extreme comparison, everybody's been talking recently about the her heritage destruction in Ukraine. Yes. And it's understood that heritage and the protection of heritage is something that is very important to people's national identity. And I think that's how the majority of people feel around the country when they're talking about the statues and street names in their own areas. They, those things are there for a particular reason and they, they mark the sort of threads of our history yeah. in, in the physical landscape. And it's very important that those things are not erased. So anything that local people can do to remember and commemorate, anything that is removed, anything that is renamed, and to, to try and organize, whether it's in your local council, in your local area, by ma making new campaigns or joining existing campaigns like the Free Speech Union or Save Our Statues or any of these other groups, um, that they find ways for their voices to be heard. And I'm loath to suggest it because I don't think it's a good idea for society to be so politicized. But I also don't think there's another way. I think that people need to participate as much as possible and to be as aware as they can be. And GB News is fantastic in informing people about these things because they won't be informed um, on any of the, the, the other, like the BBC, for example. Yeah. They, they, they won't be getting a, um, a, a proper view on all of those statues. You say you report on them every single week. Other channels are not doing that. So I think, you know, being aware of what's going on and trying to organize in response to things is pretty much the only solution I can think of for now. If I come yeah. up with a better one, well, I'll be someone sure has to. Let to. You know. um, is, does this relate to something about our culture? About I mean, to go back to what we were talking about, offence culture at the start. That the fact that if a few people are upset by the presence of a statue, then to object to that is almost to to be seen to challenge someone's lived experience, and to therefore and so therefore we we should be making decisions on the basis of how of someone's hurt feelings. Mm -hmm. Because I can imagine, you know, when some of the activists talk about Cecil Rhodes and the statue of Cecil Rhodes. And when they say, when I see that statue, I feel physically punched, I feel violated. Um, whether that's disingenuous, it might be. I mean, it's a pretty good tactic if you want to get your way. On the other hand, maybe they do feel upset because slavery is horrible. And, and you know, even though they themselves would not have experienced it, maybe they do feel some kind of mm -hmm. connection with, with ancestors who did. Is that not a possibility? I think the problem is the radical subjectivism of it. So... This was the case with the Tobias Rustat Memorial in Cambridge that um, an email was sent around 
um, describing Rasta. And as with many other historical figures, it's not factually accurate. And actually, that's the reason, one of the reasons why they left the memorial in place is because the accusations tr or the attempts to try and remove the, the um, memorial were based on feelings and um, misrepresented I was going to say misrepresented facts. They 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 wasn't factual. It right, was in right. it, but it wasn't quite made up either. Yes. It's that they felt that he was a slaver, and therefore he was a slaver. But he either was or he wasn't, right? Exactly. And so I think for many people who are of a particular mindset, it doesn't matter particularly what the the specific facts are. That if people feel offended by something and they feel offended by something say by association with slavery the the details of that person's life maybe they don't even look into it i'm not sure well they're, they're um, perfectly willing to lie that's i mean i've seen outright lies about historical figures in mm. order to you know even the way that people talk about the stonewall riots and say it was predominantly trans people who participated it was a trans riot not mm. true just factually not true, and that's verifiable. It was, it was the same with the Cecil Rhodes statue as well, that they facts will be mixed in with, um, you know, generally misleading narratives about mm. all of these different historical figures. Um, Barden Powell, uh, another, per yeah. another person who has been completely misrepresented. Um, and we now have, I mean, another example of a, of a fantastic organisation, History Reclaimed, um, historians having to come out and debunk the myths that are being peddled about these individuals yes. in order to try and justify why these statues ought to be taken down. And as I say, some of the most absolutely tenuous links, it was the same in the National Trust's report where they listed Churchill's house and um, Wordsworth's house using the, the, the most tenuous links that they could possibly have arrived at yeah. in order to show why these individuals needed to be unpersoned to but use you, you, you get this from academics as well, who, who, who I suppose rely on the fact that people will be nervous about challenging their expertise. But of course, that gives them a shield and they are able to lie, misrepresent. It's very easy mm -hmm. to smear someone who lived 300 years ago because you'll be able to find, look, I could smear anyone. You can find something on anyone, right? But particularly if they come from an era in which slavery was not mm -hmm. deemed to be a problem, shall we say. And it, it's interesting as well because this is a point that Charles Moore has made that Cambridge is quite happy to take money from China yeah. um, but they're, they're more interested in going after somebody who died hundreds of years ago and isn't, and isn't capable of defending themselves yeah. um, and I, I, do, I think that you know in in many of these cases it's the same it's the same with with um, academics academic culture and the way that they use language often I think people, and Orwell wrote about this as well in, in his essay on politics and the English language, they'll use language that is obfuscating and complicated so that everybody is in awe of them and confused. And they won't put their points across clearly. Um, and I think that there is a, is a, is a culture among some um, activists of using this sort of word magic jargon-laden, exclusive. I think someone has described it as being like barbed wire around their ideology mm. um, so that people can't understand them, are confused by them, but feel in awe of them because they state it with such authority. And when, when an enormous group of people are stating something that is not factually true so forcefully, yes. many people who want to hitch themselves onto a cause that they believe is on the right side of history will overlook 
the ignorance or the lies about that historical figure because they believe that it perhaps because they believe that it is in 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 aid of a greater cause and so maybe they're willing to overlook that so is the is the solution in clarity of expression you know for instance with history reclaimed if they can mm -hmm. convey the, the the basic facts about these figures in an accessible way they'll probably win I, I think that that is another thing that people can do that I think is really important, particularly students as well. If, if students at university read <laughs> Orwell's essay on politics in the English language and express yourself plainly, yes, you try try to stay clear of abstracts as Absolutely. much as possible. Um, try to communicate with the other person and. In a way, this is a is a psychological point because I think we really are living in an age of narcissism and egotism. To to speak in a way that doesn't focus on your own ego and um, and your own power and imposing yourself on those around you, but to communicate in a way that is fair minded and is intended to communicate. So you are actually trying to have a conversation with the other person and listen to them, and you do, you approach it with an air of humility, and you speak with as much clarity as possible. I think that that can be a very good anecdote. So that if somebody is coming at you with all of this shower of nonsense. Mm. Ask them what they mean. Question them. Use the Socratic method to try and break down exactly what they mean. And perhaps they'll get angry and they'll storm off because they don't like being questioned and being questioned is white supremacism. Yes. But at least at least you're you're starting to expose them to the possibility of being asked those questions. But it gets back to the point that a lot of them won't want won't will refuse to be asked those questions. They won't engage in the first place. So, and will respond hysterically, probably. Yes, exactly. And it takes a lot of courage to do that as well, because as I was saying, you know, there's a there's a there's a very big cost for many people, and particularly if you're a student or if mm. you're an academic or if you want promotion or you work in a particular industry, if you work in the arts, the costs can be absolutely massive by even asking, even simply asking questions. Um, asking questions can be seen as as aggressive. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to do those things anyway, um, and in any way that you can to participate in proper discussions and importantly to know what you think because it's very, very difficult to um, to confuse a person who's really given things a lot of thought themselves. How do you think um, or what sort of condition are we in in terms of the younger generation, in terms of people who are often written off mm -hmm. as being sort of blindly following this ideology or snowflake? I don't think that's true. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of hope among young people who are questioning but that, again, that's just my experience of talking to people at universities and things. Where do you think we're at? I swing between <laughs> pessimism and optimism. Right. The polls are not necessarily that promising when it comes to the younger generation. Um, I'm aware that I myself have got myself into not, a, not an echo chamber as such, but I'm surrounded by people who do live by enlightenment values yeah. to some degree. Um, the, the generation younger than myself, I think that there are lots of concerns around technology and um, the use of social media and things like that that make it very, very difficult for young people. They're essentially in, in a new frontier mm. and that has all sorts of implications for the values that we're discussing. Um, so I, I'm, I want to be optimistic about human nature and I want to be optimistic about... Um, younger people's ability to um to to grapple with the challenges that lie ahead yeah um but i'm not sure whether um not just in this country but particularly in the united states i think that a, a lot of the um activism that we see 
particularly around the climate as well, um, there is a crisis of reason and that concerns me. But then how do we tackle the idea of all of this kind of these changes that we're seeing being implemented in society are being interpreted as, as, as progress? Mm-hmm. But change and progress are not the same thing and they're being confused. And actually a lot of this stuff is very, very regressive. How do we challenge that narrative that it is just the age old thing, every every generation sort of partly resents the one that comes after it. And that's true. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as we get older, we do struggle with the fact that we are living in a world that is dissimilar to the world we knew. Mm-hmm. And that is that is inevitable and not necessarily a bad thing. But what is happening, I feel, is that anyone who is attempting to push back on this very regressive anti-enlightenment movement is being pigeonholed as just reactionary. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I know that's not the case. I think the problem is that subtlety and honesty often don't sell very well. Right, okay. <laughs> and in the, with technology, as with almost everything, there are pros and cons. And we do seem to be living in an age where it's more difficult than perhaps it was in the past to discuss things with subtlety and fairness and honesty. Even if you look at BBC archive footage of children talking in the 1960s, they sound more sophisticated than our politicians do. do now. They do. And it's remarkable. And so I think, you know, so there was a, a report released by Ofsted, um, I believe it was um, last week, at t- discussing particularly the um, the use of masks during lockdown and the imp- impact of lockdown on um, children's development. And, and one of the findings was that children have been sat in front of the television for so long that they've started imitating the accents and voices of the people they see on television right. rather than the people that they see in the world. And I think that all of that atomization and... Um, the you know social media is kind of like the pool of narcissists and everybody is stuck to it i think people need to somehow take responsibility for themselves to take themselves away from those things and i know that this is an impossible <laughs> recommendation yeah. i don't know how we change culture to be more healthy in relation to these things well, we can't put the genie back in the bottle there no. i think the, the social media is we is need there. we need to to um to take personal responsibility because I think one of the concerns that I have is that the government and social media companies, as what to take one example, think that the solution is to try and limit the platform, is to try and remove the speech that they don't like, things that they call legal but harmful to adults. They believe these that there are certain things on these platforms that are psychologically harmful, perhaps because they might offend you. Um, putting trigger warnings on things is, a, is another example. Um, I think that we need to somehow foster um, a, a culture of, of, in, of individual responsibility when it comes to these things, to view them as tools. And perhaps that's something that, that needs to be you know, dealt with partly through education right with with young people but ultimately i have absolutely no idea what the solution is well to this also problem. M- mostly because these the, this if we call it the counter enlightenment let's call it that uh the the values of the counter enlightenment appear to have infected all sides of the political spectrum you've mentioned mm-hmm. yourself the conservative party pushing through their online safety bill their protest bill they don't seem to trust adults uh mm-hmm. they don't seem to push the idea of personal responsibility which i would assume which should be one of their core values as a conservative party so with woke politics now its tentacles reaching out into every major institution cultural political educational law enforcement media 
everywhere, Conservative, Labour, mm -hmm. Lib Dem, there's nowhere left, left to go, is there? Where, where do people like you sit politically now? I have, I, again, I have no idea where I sit politically anymore. I, I regard myself as being a uh, small C conservative, particularly after COVID as being much more liberal than I, I believed that I was before COVID. Right. Um, I imagine that I'm probably politically homeless in the way that most people around the country will be after all of the upheaval of the last couple of years. Um, but I think one thing that can be done is, I mentioned institution building. I think people can find a home amongst like-minded people. It's just simply that the old institutions that people would have flocked to are no longer the right home for that. And I think that to be optimistic, people are starting to um, organize themselves and come together with others who are like-minded. And we're living through a period of so much um, political, technological um, upheaval and change in absolutely every sphere of life, whether it's social media, privacy, public health policy, um, even the, the philosophical underpinnings of, our, of, of the divisions within our politics between left and right. We used to talk about the great realignment. That feels like it was 100 years ago now. Um, I think that things are going to take many, many decades to realign themselves. And the only, the only way that I can imagine that taking a more positive form is through people finding others who, are, who, who think um, in, in similar terms and having, as I say, having these discussions um, and, and living by the values that are important um, by, by, by actually, you know, forget what you say or what you signal about what you believe, actually living the lives and behaving in a manner that demonstrates the values that you hold, actions you rather than words. And I think that that could go a long way to um, at least creating a sort of a, a, f a firm basis for um, for future institutions to be built. And you mentioned education in, mm -hmm. in regard to this, because but isn't that the problem that education in of itself? This is why activists are going after educators now and often describe themselves as educators. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why the largest teaching union, the National uh, Teachers Union, is it National Education Union, uh, is saying we need to decolonize curricula at every level. It's yeah. saying we need more activism in the classroom. We need more teachers to be activists. It's now an activist body. Yeah. Now, that's going to... All of the things that you're describing, I, I'm completely on board with. And the idea if we can make those changes in society, mm -hmm. that would be great. We, I don't think it's possible if young people are captured too early. I think um, people like Calvin Robinson, Catherine Burble Singh have done fantastic work in trying to raise awareness of the issues in education. And I think that there are individual teachers who you know, could in some way perhaps be empowered to try to resist these sorts of things. But it's a very difficult it's one. Hard, because it is, it is, it is hard. And the, the government have attempted um, and to, with different degrees of success because I think that the current government's record on the, these things is quite mixed. On the one hand, there's the online safety bill, but on the other, there is the, the, the free speech um, bill in relation to yes. academia, ac academia and higher education. Um, and 
I think, seems a bit schizophrenic. Those two things, they don't seem. I think that I think that the government are in the process of working out what their approach is. Right. Um, the, the the problem is that we are so behind in terms of um, how far this has progressed through our institutions. So, education, yes, but also our museums and the those who are the custodians of our cultural heritage, right. uh, adding plaques and descriptions to works of art and um, and, and, and having uh, gallery exhibitions that are completely one-sided and view our history and our culture and everything through only one specific um, lens. And then berating the art- artist yeah. for most of the time <laughs> about their sins. Be- and, well, because all of them are sin- sinners yeah. in, in their eyes. Um, and it's, it's a difficult one because ultimately questions of how to foster a different culture when we've let it slip so far is always going to be a difficult one and the practical solutions that we can offer are not going to be clear-cut because I think it's going to take a lot of time people people working these things out and forming different organizations some will survive some will not some will do good work for many many years some will do good work for a very short period of time and yeah um I don't know what clear-cut solutions there can well, be, I, particularly I, in education. Well, that I just is a think really of difficult. A, a teacher friend of mine who often sends me screenshots of the email he's had from the heads of department or the latest presentation they've been given about structural racism or unconscious bias or something. Um, they, they even had a day at his school where the uh, the black children were taken aside to ask for their feelings about what it's like to be black at the school. I'm sure some of them were. We're thinking it's what? like Eton College having having the boys put a pillow underneath their tops to simulate pregnancy. I didn't know about this. Um, they they call the the trendy hendy. I think is the name. What that was the purpose of the, that? It was some kind of probably diversity workshop. Okay, and I think we we don't we don't ultimately we don't know what's going on. No, that's within it. our schools. We don't know what the 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 scale of this problem is. And one thing that could be you know, a solution at least on a small scale is that if parents are aware that these sorts of things are happening in schools throughout the country, there needs to be a way for parents to hold those schools to account and to be aware of what their what their their children are being taught and to let their opinion be known, to be involved in the in, you know, become a school governor, find right. ways to um, involve yourself in your child's education, involve yourself in your local community in any ways that you can so that you are at least aware of these things when they're happening and that there is a voice to push back against them. Because it's also a solution against groupthink. A lot of the time, I don't think necessarily that everybody who's involved in these sorts of things, they're all true believers. Many people you would say would be woke adjacent, that they 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 want to do the right thing. They're nice, good people. They, they, they are living normal lives. They have haven't thought about this in any great intellectual depth um, and they want to be as I say they want to be on the right side of history and they believe that if somebody says to them that black lives matter is the heir to the civil rights movement of course they're going to want to go along with it if they're not aware of all of the all of the details about what that organization entails yeah and so I think just simply finding ways to present the alternative view whether it is you know as a governor of a school or you know in any way to just involve yourself as much as you can within civil society and within your local community has got to go some way in in pushing back against it and and so actually ultimately to challenge people of power 
like that, yeah. it's going to have to be through the courts, isn't it? I, th I think uh, uh, that the most territory will be gained by challenging these things through the courts. Um, Harry Miller was a perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, there'll be others, Maya Forstadt also. Although I think that some of these, not, not to say that they're Pyrrhic victories because they're not, they're very important victories. Um, but I think it's always important to recognise that the, the, the battle is not won, also the war is not won, even though the battles have been won. But in the case with Maya Forstadt, Stata, which I think it, it was a really incredible um, victory, found that, that basically gender critical um, beliefs are protected. What you mean, the statement of biological facts? Yes, but that, <laughs> we're allowed but this to do is, that by law. This, this, <laughs> this is exactly what I mean when I say that we have to look at these. We we have to not get sucked into the worldview when we, with the way that we look at what the, at these victories and the details of them, because the protection of gender critical beliefs as as a, as a philosophical belief to me seems absurd because as you say it's a statement of biological fact these are not beliefs this is a statement of fact and so it seems crazy that the only way that we can defend um we can defend these things and that the, the the most strategic way to defend these things is by saying that this is a philosophical belief that is protected i see um but i think that in itself shows that we've got ourselves into a bit of a bind yeah <laughs> um but nonetheless, these are victories that are taking us in the right direction one step at a time. And every single case that is taken to court and is won and every person who, you know, goes through the employment tribunals or um, if, if you're a barrister, if you've you know, gone through the process that the barristers have to go through, there's an arbitration um, tribunal that, that they go through. Um, you know, I, I think that every single one of these is a step in the right direction, but Ultimately, the battle is going to be won through a combination of that with cultural change. And I think the only way to, to achieve that cultural change is through creating platforms where people can have free discussions and free speech. And by organisations like the Free Speech Union and others uh, redressing that balance and removing the costs of speaking freely and helping to open up spaces where people can have free dialogue and can express themselves in in in, in a way that is you know absolutely legitimate in a free and democratic society but has been withheld from many people in so many different spheres of life emma webb thank you very much for joining me today thank you for having me This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Emma Webb. Please do follow Emma on Twitter. She's at Emma underscore A underscore Webb. You can also check out a lot of her work on the New Culture Forum YouTube channel. And if you enjoyed the show, please do like and subscribe. Join me again next week. I'll have another fabulous guest for you. See you then.